And this is the Imperfect Buddha Podcast, exploring contemporary Buddhism at the edge and at play in the great feast of knowledge. Sponsored by O'Connell Coaching. Visit imperfectbuddha.com coaching if you're interested in exploring the themes that emerge in this podcast and engaging with the challenges of a contemporary spiritual practice. Welcome to this, well, I guess it's the most political of the triad of podcast episodes being released after the first wave of COVID, and unfortunately, right at the start of the second wave over here in Italy. This episode is with Santiago Zabala. He is a philosopher and cultural critic and research professor of philosophy at the Pompeu Fabra University in Barcelona in Spain. Santiago has a wide range of interests and has written books and articles and carried out research on a, well, range of fascinating topics. But the one that I find most interesting is freedom, a central theme in contemporary Western Buddhism, of course. It is a complex affair and far more complex than I think many Buddhists would like to admit. Now, Santiago is not a Buddhist. We won't be talking about Buddhism very much in this episode at all, although a couple of links are made. In part, we'll be talking about the latest book of his, which is called Being at Large, Freedom in the Age of Alternative Facts. Santiago is a hermeneutic philosopher, and his work really looks at the role interpretation plays socially in our relationship to knowledge, the news, politicians, leaders, and really this quagmire of fascinating, intense change which is wrapped up in, well, our collective ability or inability to distinguish facts from fiction, reality from fantasy, and recognize how interpretation is fundamentally at the heart of all of those, rather than us being engaged in a mere project of sorting the muck from the good stuff that defines reality appropriately and correctly, Santiago makes the point that we are never perceivers, capturers of reality in its totality. We always see things partially, past guests might say, ideologically. Others might say through a lens or a filter, which is to say we bring our history with us and our own cultural trappings. So Santiago calls for better interpretation and a better capacity to pay attention to the world of fake news and the reality of knowledge and communication today. Like the episode with Sam Van Shake, there's a link in this one too to a past guest. And as I'm considering that these topics are quite specialised and will not interest all listeners, and that those that do listen will be very interested, I'd like to make that link explicit. Back at number 37, we had a chat with another European, a Frenchman, Yves Citon, on the ecology of attention. Great episode, slightly underrated in my view, and well worth a listen. So if you haven't heard that one, you ought to go back and give it a go after this one. If you did enjoy that one, you should certainly get quite a bit out of this one too. A central element of Santiago's claim really goes beyond the mere concept of freedom to develop this idea of being at large, which means to be unconstrained by the new order. What is that order? Well, it's an interesting one. It's actually one I quite like in some ways and disdain in others. He calls it the new realist order or a return to reality. What does it mean? What could it all mean? And what does it mean to you? Well, you might want to give this episode a listen if you want to find out more and check out Santiago's book, Being at Large, Freedom in the Age of Alternative Facts. Please note that the sound quality on this one is not the best. I did try to work some editing magic on it, so it's perfectly listenable. But it's just, 
maybe not the quality you're always used to. The conversation is worth your time anyway, so please, go on. Mind the gap and go ahead. Hello and welcome to the Imperfect Buddha podcast. Today we're speaking to Santiago Zabala. And first of all, I'd like to ask you, Santiago, what do we need to know about you to get a bit of sense of who you are and the kind of work you're doing? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to, um, to be part of this podcast. Um, well, uh, I'm a philosopher or actually a professor of philosophy, although there's a difference between the two. And I teach at the University of Pompeo Fabra in Barcelona, and I work mainly on continental philosophy, therefore on uh, philosophical issues that are related with society, with history, and in general with, with how we feel, how we situate ourselves in, in the world. That all sounds really interesting. So let me ask you another question, which some people like and some don't. Why does your work matter? Okay, well, I think that my work and the work of other continental philosophers who do similar work as I do, for example, Sam Mickey, who was in your podcast recently, I think it matters because we are living now in, in an age or in, in decades where there is a lot of need for thinking, for thought in general. And this is due to the level of technological control we have reached now. In other words, we find the pro- many of the problems we face today are a result of not having thought enough, not having done enough philosophy. And by philosophy, of course, I'm referring to a critical approach of thinking. We're going to talk about your recently released work, which is called Being at Large, Freedom in the Age of Alternative Facts, which uh, seems a perfect title for the age we live in. Let's start with a few definitions for a general audience. Um, you know, continental philosophy is something... I find fascinating, but it often produces a kind of language that can be difficult for a more general audience. Let's start off with the terms, though, in the title of the book. It's not freedom from alternative facts, right? But it's freedom and alternative facts. So give us a definition of those two. So what are alternative facts as you write about them in your book? And what is freedom? Okay, uh, that's a very good question and a difficult question. Although I wrote a book about it, that does not mean I have a, a definite answer. But first of all, uh, I think alternative fact is nothing new. Uh, we always had alternative facts. This is nothing new. If we look through history, we can see also newspapers when we only had printed press. Uh, alternative facts also emerged there. Uh, the only difference we have today is that we have, we have more of them. Uh, we have so many of them. And also that they are all, they have in some way uh, emerged because of um, what I like to call a return to order. Uh, one of the main ideas of the book is that since uh, the beginning of the century, since 9-11, we have witnessed uh, an intensification. In other words, I don't think anything really changed after 9-11. I think what, what changed was there has been an intensification of measures, uh, financial, military, technological, uh, which of course now with, this, uh, with the pandemic has increased even more. Uh, and so this has created a sort of return to order, a return to, um, to reality, which is really a problem because it, it has in some way reduced our freedom. So now what's the definition of freedom here? Well, freedom is a problem today. It's a problem because it's, it, it's really a practice that uh, it is not so easy as many people think to practice. Is our freedom to go online an actual freedom, or is it a way to control and to limit our freedoms even more? Well, I think it's the later because uh, we are we are facing a reduction of, uh, of critical thinking in general, but also even of investigative journalism, for example. Uh, and I think that from a political point of view, this is very clear when you see at this uh, new right-wing populist uh, politician from Trump to Bolsonaro, Di Maio in Italy or Sabine in Italy, that are really, they really base their politics on this idea of, of alternative facts, of, because they are telling us what the facts are all the time. Uh, and the facts are not out there. The facts are a result. They have always been a result of our engagement in, in society in some way. Even the vaccine, to make an example, a practical example now, uh, the vaccine that they're trying to find it, it would work only there is a community working on it. In other words, facts are not there. They don't just lie there. They need a community of scientists, of journalists, of society in general to believe in them. 
Otherwise, they're not facts. They're just laying out there. So the idea of freedom is that we have to have the ability to, well, to find different paradigms uh, within which we, we can think. So thinking that should not be limited to what Google, Facebook, Amazon, and a few others tell us to do. There has to be something beyond that. And I think that the beyond, that's the problem. That's where freedom lies in our capacity to reflect on what goes on beyond these frames. That's interesting. So it sounds like, in a sense, though, uh, freedom's always a little bit out of reach. This is the problem of the title of the book, Being at Large. So I think that being free today means to be at large, to get a little bit lost. But of course, in English, being at large has this connotation of being also fugitive, right? Well, my first question is, well, the question I, I normally ask to, to answer in some way, because it's a question that matters not so much the answer, is that who really is at large today? Do we also want to be at large today? It seems that, for example, religion, or even Buddhism, of course, which is different from a religion, but in the realm of religion, or even in the realm of spirituality, maybe that's one place where it is possible to be at large. So my concern in the book is how can we be at large today in this age of alternative facts, where facts are imposed upon us in some way, to the point of limiting what, what is real and what is not real. The fact that Whoever wins the elections in November is really dependent on what Mark Zuckerberg decides these days. Well, it's a problem of freedom also that we have to, in some way, uh, confront. And how we confront uh, these claims, okay, these limitations, is really the issue here. Yeah, I like this use then of uh, being at large. I didn't quite catch that meaning when I first read the title, and I, I quite like it. But it also presents us with another challenge, I think, which is that, as you asked, who is at large, uh, the second question might be, who actually wants to be at large? Because, of course, as you well know, the, um, the the interrelationship we have with social media also provides us with certain kinds of psychological and emotional comforts that reinforce a certain sense of self. And there is a kind of um, a sense of abstract freedom, isn't there, in the ability to just keep surfing forever and look forever. But you seem to be suggesting that within that process, there is actually some kind of imprisonment taking place or some kind of horizon that's lost in the process. Would, would that be right? The horizon, I don't know whether the horizon is, is lost, because if it's lost, it means that we had it before. The problem of the horizon, which is a very important concept in, in the philosophy that I practice, is, is that is it possible to maintain a horizon always open for us? Is it possible to, to maintain and to create also projects? But let's say a project even of, uh, of life in some way. How, how, how limited are we? This. this is really, this all comes down basically, and, and you mentioned before that I should define a little bit more the idea of continental philosophy. Well, this really comes down to the idea of what does existence mean today? How do you define or how do you tell us what your existence means? This is something that continental philosophy, as opposed to another branch of philosophy called analytic philosophy, well, we try to respond to these questions without science or without submitting critical thinking to, to the achievement or to the innovation, constant innovation of science or technological progress in general. So the idea here is to try to, is it possible to think not simply out of the box because the box already is a problem, but to think in such a way that you can in some way be at large. This is something I, I like to explain this. Can I, can I continue? Yeah, sure. I, this is something I, I, I like to explain with the difference there is between what we are having now, which is a conversation, and what other people talk about having a dialogue. Well, there's a very big difference between both of them. Uh, in a dialogue, which you can see Plato's dialogue, where he said it very clearly, there's always a violence implied. In a dialogue, one of the two interlocutors knows the truth and also ends up by imposing it. Often in the United Nations, we can hear that taking place, but also in Plato's dialogue, where he literally tries to uh, grab from the hair the slate to show him the light of the truth or whatever the truth is. Well, that that's very violent, uh, and it's it's already predetermined how will it will will end. Instead of conversation, and we have another word for this, which is conversation. This is something that we don't know. We do not know how a true. Let's put it this way: a true a true dialogue is really a conversation that we do not know where it will end. Uh, for example, I do not know all the questions you will ask me now. And that's what actually makes it probably a very good conversation because it becomes unique. You can't copy it afterward. You can't just 
happen again. Uh, and so I think that what we have to find or a way of defining our existence is through the idea of a conversation that you don't know where it will end. So it is, it is in some way at large. So your book is divided into three sections, being, interpretation, and emergency. Now, if you'll allow me to, I'd like to actually come at those backwards. You, you've already touched on being, which is such a fascinating topic, but I'd like to look at how the title of the book relates to the, the third section of emergency. Within that, there are further sections of populism, which you mentioned briefly before and that I'm very familiar with here in Italy, biodiversity. And the one that catches my imagination the most, though, is revelations. So can we start off with that one then? So right at the back, can you begin by talking about revelations and its connection to emergency? Where are you going with that? And what do we need to know? Well, first of all, I mentioned before that uh, we're living in a return to order, return to realism in this um, in this century. And that has a lot to do with the idea of emergency and most of all of the idea that there aren't really that many emergencies anymore. Now, this might sound sound very strange uh, considering we are actually living now in, an, in a pandemic, in an emergency. I believe that today the greatest emergency we have, and I, I have to be very clear here, not the only emergency, but the greatest, is the idea that, we do, that there aren't any emergencies. In other words, we have uh, constructed, created, produced, or intensified to such a level of control and of framing our, our world through globalization and, and so forth, that we have created a condition where the greatest emergency is the absence of emergency. In other words, even the emergencies that now emerge, for example, the pandemic, it's not something really new. I mean, this was expected for a very long time. The amount of scientists and even politicians and even Bill Gates have warned us that this was going to happen sooner or later. So it seems to me that now we live in an age where the greatest emergency is the absence of emergency. And an example of this, uh, we can see in whistleblowers who reveal, right, truth. It is very interesting to notice how the truth that Assange, Snowden, and uh, Christopher Willey disclose, unfortunately, have not changed so much, have not changed anything. I mean, we are now going to face the same problems in this in the elections in November than we did four years ago, even though we know the scandal of Facebook and everything that took place. So truth in itself doesn't really change anything today. And this is an, in a way to show that even the greatest revelations, even truth will not change this return to order that I, that I mentioned before. So my thesis in, in that paragraph on revelations is that our greatest emergency today is that we do not have enough revelation. Uh, perhaps having more of them might give us a bigger chance to actually have some change. This is the idea behind the idea of the, the notion of emergency, that the greatest emergency is the absence of emergency. In other words, uh, the fact that emergencies don't really change anything. And the few that we have are even predicted beforehand. And we don't do anything. We don't, we can't really manage to do anything again. And I let me just add that it seems that we have a sort of a control over emergencies. And this also should really worry us because this means that someone is taking someone, or we probably know who it is, but someone is taking decisions on what constitutes an emergency and what doesn't. The fact that today in Europe, over 7 million people die, unfortunately, every year of lung cancer due to air pollution, it's curious that we treat the coronavirus which haven't, hasn't reached 700,000 deaths, which is horrible, but still, it's not even close to, to the effects of, uh, of air pollution. What is the greater emergency there? What is more of an emergency? There's a lot that's interesting in there, and as I was listening to you, a few words came to mind. The first one would be complacency. I think mm -hmm. we are perhaps living in a kind of an age of complacency, which would seem to naturally emerge from your your thesis about our incapacity, not not to see emergency, but not to be able to, con to contextualize it sufficiently in order to lead to some kind of action. Um, one thing I get as a perspective on our kind of global state at present is a, is a lingering and constant sense of overwhelm. And this seems to saturate not just the general public, but the, you know, the professional class leaders, politicians, and so forth. It's, um, it's a very odd situation we're in, I think. I also, was thinking about this concept of hyperreality uh, a while back. I was writing a blog post on it, you know, and this this notion of hyperreality is that we 
we increasingly find it difficult to distinguish reality from our kind of fictions and our, our mm-hmm. symbolic representations of it. And I wonder if that, that's also kind of plugs into this theme of the incapacity to kind of make sense of what's real and instead kind of live in a, in a fiction or live in our fictions about it. Because I think if I look at populism in Italy, it seems that it emerges as something, as a movement that's centered around a fiction, which in real terms can no longer work or exist. But if people maintain a kind of vision of it as a potential or as a kind of unreal world that they can inhabit, then populism can thrive. And one of my concerns, I think, thinking about emergency more, more broadly is, is whether we as a kind of global collective can wake up out of this complacency that you seem to be pointing to in, in, in your, uh, your thoughts there in your writing on emergency. Do you see any connection there? No, no, it does make sense. And uh, I would like just to add that on reality, my concern is just that we need perhaps to redefine what reality means. Uh, because, as I mentioned before, well, facts, uh, w- whatever facts we want to discuss, but facts alone don't, don't do anything. It just doesn't work. It's, facts exist if we all agree upon more or less what a fact is. So if this is the case, if you, know, you can see throughout the history of science uh, that facts change, they, they're not seen the same way, and they're not treated the same way. If reality is not something that it's out there, but it's something that we have to all interpret together and find some sort of agreement that we agree that a fact is a fact, well, then this means that um, we have to seriously take into consideration our interpretation. And by interpretation, I, I don't simply mean, you know, this is my opinion, but it, it's opinions of institutions, opinions of newspapers, of academics, of and so forth. Without that community of consent, facts die in some way, or even worse, alternative facts emerge. So I think that's one thing about reality that we have to think about. The second thing about populism, and I agree with you, it, it, it fits very well within this um, return to order that I mentioned before. And in particular, I think right-wing populism, which is different from left-wing populism, and it's also very different from digital populism, which is something also uh, very common here in Italy. Right-wing populism works very well today, and it works very well because not only of this return to order, but also because of an incapacity of leftist populism or of progressive populism to emerge in some way. Unfortunately, we're living in an age, in a, in a populist moment, whether we like it or not. Uh, I mean, we are living under Twitter, basically, so there isn't any space for very long political discourses or speeches. And one should not be surprised that someone who uses Twitter became president of the United States through those uh, 140 characters or whatever they are. It is, it is our goal, I think, as, as thinkers, but I think anybody, whatever his realm of uh, action is, to try to, to oppose in some way this uh, unification of what facts are. And most of all, I think this, this unification of this return to order, where, where even emergencies are decided beforehand, which ones are supposed to be addressed and which aren't. Okay, well, look, you've mentioned this return to order on a number of occasions already, and although you've qualified it to some degree, we usually use return and order. So we're talking about the, the attempt to reassert some kind of uh, stable structure that existed beforehand, or some kind of vision of the world politically. Well, what is it you're really getting at there? Well, both of them. Return to order was this expression used after World War One in France, where they requested artists to represent reality in their paintings as, as it was, because people were a devastating time. Uh, I think we what we have now is more or less the same thing. I think globalization is a very, in the way it is understood today, it's a very good example of this, because there is an order, financial, uh, military, and so forth, both here in the West, but also in Asia, uh, which is trying to limit uh, as much as possible uh, our freedoms, and by freedoms, I'm not simply referring to our freedom to buy what we, you know, certain limits of, of products we can buy, or I'm referring more to a freedom of, of a different life. For example, is it possible today not to have, at least in the West, not to have, I don't know, a credit card or, or a phone? It is possible to do those things, but it would create a number of problems. So that's one example. But let's also think a little bit more broadly if I want to be at large in Europe today, and, and let's go even further now. 
So I want to uh, study humanities. Well, humanities are under attack now, basically everywhere. So critical thinking is already a problem as far as disorder is concerned. There is much more funding towards science, technology, and a specific science, a specific technology at the service of big corporations, that also there, and we even see this now uh, on the, the terrible uh, clash there is between pharmaceutical companies, which is going to uh, not only have the, the back, vaccine first, which they manage, but also who is going to uh, profit from it. So there is already a conflict there. And now let's go even further. What are my possibilities also of creating a different existence for myself? Well, these are all things which are a problem because there is a clear indication, and I think this is very, very clear as far as when, when one thinks of Trump, Bolsonaro, and Le Pen, and Salvini, that even this idea of American first or Italians first is also a way of closing up even more. This is why I think Karl Popper is someone that we should all start reading again, and I, I'm trying to do that now. Just the idea of an open society today, it, it's really an important concept. Hopefully we should try to, um, to remember what that meant as opposed to a closed society. The issue of whether we're living in a closed or an open society should be addressed because it's an issue today. It is not something that we should take for granted. Yeah, it's interesting. Going back to the, the first term we started with, emergency tends to lead to a certain kind of self-defense or retreat or withdrawal. You know, you're, you're talking about a return to order, but where I'm seeing it based on listening to to what you said so far is it's, um, at least in Europe, there's a tangible sense that countries are retreating back into themselves. The most obvious example, obviously, being uh, Brexit. But uh, I think we see it in Italy, too, where there's this sense of losing control, and then there's a desire for order, and then a desire to reassert boundaries. And that seems to accompany a sense of, well, a sort of crisis about really recognizing who we are and what we are. And I think the notion of being European and of being open to something beyond the national, the local, was very strong here for a while. And that seems to be in retreat. So I wonder how it would be possible to reassert that kind of vision in the world when, you know, we see the global capitalist system kind of reaching its limits and we see america retreating first as you know the the great leader of the last century and and china uh, is not being seen as a benevolent emergent force which is probably the right way to view it but that also seems to be amplifying this sense of concern and worry and panic about the the wider world and the whole global project i don't know if you tie those two together you know this um this idea of freedom or, or going beyond and globalization more broadly because we could probably argue as well that globalization inevitably has led to populism being what it is today. Well, I think Brexit is a perfect example that shows that something for us Europeans, for me, that I'm, I have, I'm 45 years old, I more or less agree with the idea of the European Union. I saw it materialize. I, I understood what was good, what was wrong in it. And also, uh, I'm now wondering whether it will actually last. But I am not so sure whether it would last because of this return to order again. Europe has been, these past 10, 10 years, has been basically an experimental field to imagine a better neoliberalism than the one practiced in, uh, in, in the United States and maybe even in Asia. Now, after Brexit, which I consider something positive, that's not because my British friends are leaving, but because I think it, it has been a wake-up call for a lot of Europeans to understand that we were supposed to be a third option after the United States and China, and I, w I wonder whether we would, we would manage to stay afloat. I, I want to add, as far as everything I said today, about also how my book enters into, into all this, because, and this might, might sound a little bit provocative, but I am more or less happy that there is, a, there is a sort of clash between China and the United States today, because in some way it, it opens up the possibility that, okay, there is our world, our view of things here in the West, but there's also another one. I, I often go to China, I know what their views are, and they're different from ours. They have a different view of how things should, should work. I'm not saying that they're, they're better. They're not necessarily better in many, many respects. But, you know, this gives the idea that there are different, a different options. Having said this, what I'm mostly interested in, and this actually has a lot to do with the title of the podcast, uh, Imperfect Buddha, the idea of imperfection, is that in the philosophy that I practiced, that I mentioned, which continental philosophy that has 
it's a, it's a branch of philosophy that is far from science. It's not really believe that science will solve all our problems. And the idea is that, well, what we should really look for, I think, as far as freedom is concerned and some of the other concepts we mentioned, and this is something that the Occupy movement or mostly of those movements of the 90s against globalization would not be happy, would not agree with me, but we should not be, look, be looking for an alternative to our global system. We should really be looking for an alteration of our global system. Now, there's a very big difference between the idea of, you know, looking for an alteration, uh, an alternative. It's really something I think that is too much. It's like requesting too much. We really don't have the tools. I don't think we have either the theoretical tools and neither the physical tools to really imagine an, uh, a total alternative. Because also the alternative we have, and I now I go back to China, is not necessarily one we want. So my, my interest is how do we produce alterations of the system? Now, an alteration is something that I think it, it's more interesting and it has probably potentialities to work because alterations, in some way, they, 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 they request change, but the, the change are, are much deeper. They, go, they have much more to do with micropolitics, with social movements also, and, um, and they do not request this total change, which will be probably too violent, much too violent now. So my concern is how do we create alterations? Now, alterations can only be, can only take place if we know that, well, in some way we are imperfect, that, that we are, another term I like to use is weak. We are not that strong. In other words, if we assume our weakness, if we assume that, well, we all have to interpret to know what facts are, for example, well, then that's what gives us a sense of community in some way. Uh, and so my, my goal most of my philosophical goals, also in my other book, is the idea to, well, let's find alterations that can in some way produce produce change. Yeah, I think I would generally agree with you, and there's an interesting direction we could take with that, but uh, I want to stay closer to your text. And since you've mentioned the, the second section that we're going to get to, which is uh, interpretation, I think we should head off in that direction next. I'm aware that you are very much involved with hermeneutics and therefore interpretation you know, would be a natural title to include in the text. But can we just start off for those who are less familiar with this, this area of philosophy? I'm personally very interested in it, but I, th I think it's always nice to ask a couple of questions to people when we approach afresh the broad areas of practice. Um, so I'm going to put them this way. I'll give you all three together and you can answer them as you like in any order you wish. First of all, could you give like a, a very, very simple definition of hermeneutics? Is it enough to say interpretation? And then what was the initial insight for you personally that captured your imagination with regards to hermeneutics? So what is it that initially sent you down the road of wanting to involve yourself in this area of philosophy? And then how do you see hermeneutics operating at the various levels of society in a complex globalized world today? And how are you attempting to respond to that specifically through hermeneutics? All right. So definition of hermeneutics should be, I think interpretation is not enough, but hermeneutics comes from Hermes, which was a Greek, a Greek god that uh, had to translate and, um, and bring the message from the mortal to the immortals. And while he brought the messages, he also had to translate them. And of course, in every translation, there's always some interpretation. It's impossible to translate a sentence from French to German, that it be perfectly translated. There's always something, in a way, something wrong with it. Now, the fact that there is something wrong with it, or that interpretation is always, there's always an alteration, uh, that's actually the con contribution of the translator. So a great, a great translator is the one that actually sometimes even improves the text he's in translating. The interesting thing is that Hermes was accused of being also a traitor because he's because they noticed that his translations were not accurate. So interpretation is really what happens in that translation when we communicate. Now it has developed throughout since Aristotle, who has a, a treaty called of interpretation, uh, all the way until now. So it's a very important philosophy discipline. I would even say in the history of philosophy that it deals with interpretation mostly of texts. So the Bible or juridical texts, 
more philosophically coming more to what its philosophical connotation has have really gained import in the 19th century with several German philosophers, most importantly with Hans Gerhard Gadamer, who wrote in 1960 a very important book called Truth and Interpretation, where he um, sort of laid the foundation of what we understand today for hermeneutic, which is basically philosophy of interpretation. Well, I've been writing about hermeneutics always since my first book. The idea is basically that hermeneutic is something very, very radical, very anarchic. It's a sort of a resistance in some way. Uh, and what I liked about this is there are many examples I could use here, but one of the most important chapters in the history of hermeneutics is, of course, Luther. When Luther translated the Bible, he really made a, a revolutionary act because a, a text that was only, that could only be commented and read by few people, few priests, few bishops, suddenly became a text that was translated in German for everybody. Uh, and so he really changed the course of history, basically, doing this, uh, this act of hermeneutics. Then, of course, there are other examples. Freud, Freud, all psychoanalysis is based on the idea that we have to interpret dreams and that our subconscious or even our conscious consciousness is not so conscious as we think it is. So there's a work of interpretation to be done there. And the third example I always like to remind is the one of Thomas Kuhn the very famous um, historian of science who came up with the idea of paradigm shift in scientific revolution. So in science, there are always revolutions that change the paradigm that we have, and this is because we are always interpreting. There's also a small biographical thing I should add is that I was raised in different countries, in Italy, in Austria, and in Switzerland. And so I, I had to learn many languages when I was a teenager, and, and so I... Um, I understand the idea that how important plurality is and how rich plurality can can be and also how difficult it is also. But And so there, there is an effort there that I think that it's something probably that attracted me in the, in the idea of homonetics. And finally, how can homonetics solve, or I would prefer to say dissolve, some of the problems we have today? Well, we are living this return to order that I mentioned before, globalization, if we want to use this other term, uh, hermeneutics is really the worst enemy of globalization. Uh, hermeneutics is the philosophy that is inviting us to interpret not only for ourselves, but to interpret for the community of, that we have. So this is why another very important hermeneutical thinker, perhaps the most important one, I think it's uh, Friedrich Nietzsche. Nietzsche is the first one who actually had this formula that there are no facts, there are only interpretations, and this is also an interpretation. So I interpret it, and I explain this in chapter two. It's really the only theoretical and practical, I think, tool we have to oppose globalization in general, and to also understand alternative facts. Because, again, for us hermeneutic philosophers, there's nothing new in alternative facts. They have always been there. What is important is our capacity and our ability in general, and most of all, I would say, even our willingness to interpret. Because this is the example I always try to make from a political point of view, is to ask, who interprets? Who are the ones interested today to interpret? Well, certainly not the ones in power uh, or the ones more comfortable with the way society is built. The ones in power or comfortable, they prefer would continue to describe uh, how things are because they are comfortable in that. So the ones that are uncomfortable, the ones that are at margins, the ones that are weak, those are the ones who instead, you know, they have to propose an uh, alteration of reality or even an alternative. And therefore, they perhaps translate the Bible and show that our consciousness is not so simple and plain as Freud explained. Or even that scientists does not search for truth, like Thomas Kuhn explained. So who interprets it's the weak, it's the ones that are not comfortable and that dream for a more open society. There's a lot in there again. You made me think of this phrase, the poverty of imagination, in the sense that I think one of the consequences of this return to order that you describe, or negation of the role of uh, interpretation, is that there's a certain degree of maintenance of the status quo, but also that, you know, in this kind of uh, hyper-real world we live in where, as you were saying before, Twitter ends up dictating much of what ends up as uh, public discourse. It's not just public discourse, is it? It's the internal discourse. It's the way we even imagine what is, what should be, and then what is possible. And I think that kind of intimacy that's become the norm between the individual groups, societies, and social media... And this whole interpretive process becomes kind of sped up and intensified emotionally. 
and uh, there's a lot of chaos around too. And I think that maybe pushes a desire for some kind of stability or return to something before, but also makes it very difficult for not just those in power or those in the establishment, but also the weak members of society that you were uh, alluding to, to actually get into an imaginative space where they could articulate something that is a meaningful alternative to the, the kind of world we've created or, or imagined for ourselves so far. And that takes us nicely, I think, to um, the third section and the first section in your book, which again is, is obviously very, very easy for philosophers to discuss. And I'm being ironic here. The idea of being. So let's start off with this. Why did you start the book with being? And where do you go with that? Why do I start the book with being? And why do, why does all philosophical investigation start off with the idea of being? which being is really another word for existence or for essence. Who studies being? Only philosophers study the problem of existence. Maybe some nuclear physics, but that's something different. Philosophers deal with the idea of what is the difference between the objects we have in front of us, in our case a computer, and, uh, and the existence of the object of the computer and my relationship with that object. So being is really a concept that presupposes philosophical investigation. In other words, this is also what in philosophy we try we call ontology. In other words, we approach philosophical problems or we approach problems in general from an ontological point of view, trying to find out what the essence of in the case of if we someone who's interested in, in art, for example, well nobody goes to study history. Nobody who wants to know what art is will go to study history of art. That's a, that's a philosophical question. Uh, if you want to know what mathematics is, you have to study logic. That's also a philosophical branch. So the idea of starting off from being, because being is the first question we have to ask ourselves. How am I going to interpret this reality here? Well, that, that's the first question you should ask yourself. So how do I interpret, why do I begin this idea of freedom from the problem of, of being? Well, the idea is that I think that being, to, to actually exist today as an autonomous being, in other words, not framed by our return to order, in other words, by globalization, in other words, by Twitter, etc., etc., not to be framed by them means to exist at large, to find your ways in some way. And the problem here is that finding your way or even or even choosing what, what sort of existence you want to you want to live, that's not only already today, I think, a very revolutionary question. Few people ask themselves, or at least I think People who listen to this podcast do ask themselves this question. But also, I think the, the answer to that question, I think that, well, it really requires an effort. Question your existence requires an effort in some way. So when I say that, well, today it's very difficult to be at large, I'm in some way trying to invite everybody to be at large within their capacity or within their, some domains of their lives. This is why I, I tend to tell my my undergraduate students that, you know, they're very revolutionary today to study philosophy. They're really studying a discipline or what's left of philosophy as a discipline. In, um, they're very revolutionary because not only question of funding and all that stuff, but also because it has become even more, apparently, more useless than what it already was before. Of course, I think the fact that we have so many of these ecological, environmental, political, etc. problems today all the emergencies we have we face today, it's curious how many of them have actually become existential uh, threats, existential emergencies. The fact that they have become that, it, because we haven't thought of them enough. Um, this is why I have a student who, at the beginning of uh, the year, told me that his parents were trying to persuade him to, uh, to change, to change to some science, medicine or something. And uh, I told him to, to let them know that we find ourselves in this mess because we haven't told, we haven't interpreted properly the warnings all this past year from scientists and so forth. <clears throat> so being, it, it's a way of, of questioning also our, our identity. Why am I saying all this? Because the question of what being is, it's a question that has not been answered for the past 3,000 years in the history of philosophy. Every, if you read throughout the history of philosophy, you see that every philosopher has a different understanding of what being means. And they have all approached this issue. Once they more or less constructed uh, a system or a, or a philosophy or an approach that gives an answer to that, well, a, a whole philosophy comes 
come out, comes out of it to approach perhaps ethical, aesthetical, political, or so forth issues. It's interesting that it's a question that we, we so readily dismiss or forget to come back to because you described at the beginning when you were talking about hermeneutic, you were implying that it's a practice, right? It's a discipline to some degree. Yes. And, yeah. you know, there's this whole concept within contemporary philosophy that, that the return of the practicing life is actually a reminder that mere existence itself is a practice, right? We're not just passive subjects receiving or being remade in the world, we're actually participating in the process of being a fresh or being a new or reproducing even uh, an order as you've spoken about today. So uh, very good. Thank you. The time we have today is limited and there's lots more things I could ask you. You've got a, you're, you're displaying a very interesting range of, of knowledge about a great variety of topics, which all fascinate me too. But one person who did get in on this conversation beforehand was Sam Mickey, the person you mentioned. And I asked him if he wouldn't mind sharing a question for you. So I'm going to ask you his question, which is related again to the role of hermeneutics. And I'll read it to you. How do you respond to current trends in philosophy that want to focus more on practice, materialism and realism, and less on interpretation and hermeneutics? Why is hermeneutics so important today? Well, um, I think Sam is referring to uh, some new philosophical approaches, and by new, in philosophy, nothing new ever happens. The tradition of philosophy has already responded or taken all the possible uh, approaches there are. So there's this new philosophy called new realism, and they actually use the word new, which is also called object-oriented ontology, and uh, they have a certain name called speculative realism. And these guys, which are all very, very smart, I think they are the greatest danger we have today as far as the things that I'm talking about because they are a clear symptom of this return to order that I mentioned before. Since more or less the beginning of the century, they have been telling us that we have to return, we have to oppose postmodernity, we have to oppose everything that uh, postmodernity implies, therefore, hermetics, deconstruction, critical theory, uh, which have also given, gave us results as uh, political correct. The, even the idea of political correctness is actually something that comes from postmodernity. And they actually think that we have to return to some sort of uh, reality and to objects in themselves and to everything that this implies. For someone like me, this has been, of course, this all fits in my criticism of return to order and my criticism of their, their approach fits in very well because they are precisely the symptom of globalization. In other words, to return to one universal um, value also. And many of them are also now trying to, to work on, uh, on explaining why European universal values are the only ones we should follow. And this is something very strange considering all the work on post-coloniality that we've been, uh, I think everybody would more or less agree on those things. Sam is basically referring to that because in the book, I, I really addressed the book against them. I'm not the only one, of course, doing this, but I think this is the big problem we have with this sort of return, what they call return to reality or to the intrinsic nature of, of being. On the contrary, we should instead push even more forward our own uh, difference, in other words, of that postmodern philosophers insist. And the reason I do this is because, unfortunately, there has been a sort of um, big mistake, or I don't know whether it's a mistake or it's more of misdirected anger towards uh, postmodern philosophers, because... When François Lyotard published in 1979 the postmodern condition, the idea of postmodernity and postmodern thinkers in general is not that, oh, there is no truth, there are only interpretations, and we should just let everything flow. And that's not the idea. The idea of postmodernity was let's be very careful to return to modernity, to return to an age where universal values were imposed on civilizations in general. The postmodernity is really a sort of a way to keep, to make sure that we do not return to imposing values, to, to imposing facts on all of us. Even if we think of 2003, when, when George Bush invaded Iraq on the assumption that there were weapons of mass destruction, in other words, on pure facts, um, which apparently were not even there at the end. But that's not the only result. When you do that, there are other things that come, for example, imposing democracy, which is something he also did. And not all of our societies are interested or even ready, or, but some are not even interested. I wouldn't be 
so interested in uh, in democracy even today, considering that it's totally manipulated by by social media. Apparently. So the idea here is that I respond to them by well, let's question again, for example, what our freedom is. I'm sure that we will not find freedom returning to reality. We will find freedom moving away from reality, from what reality has become today. This is my concern. My concern is that that branch of philosophy or that this so-called new philosophy, they are an attempt to domesticate us even more. And it shouldn't be a surprise that the philosopher who started this or who we restarted, this was this already took place centuries ago, this debate on, on realism. Um, but the one who started this at the beginning of the century was in a distinguished American philosopher called John Searle. And John Searle, he literally not only articulated all this idea of return to order, but he also suggested not only that we should in some way submit to the achievement of uh, hard science, so critical thinking should be reduced to what hard science uh, tells us it's it's right and wrong, but he also uh, believed that freedom should be in some way also reduced to what neurobiology tells us that freedom should be. In all this, it shouldn't be a surprise that he accepted and went to went to Washington, actually, to the ceremony, he accepted a prize by George Bush, President's Medal. I can assure you, I would be very surprised that other philosophers, more continental philosophers, would have accepted such a prize. For example, another American philosopher who passed away, Richard Royalty, would have accepted such a prize from George. So, to respond to Sam's question is that our approach towards them, our response to them, should be to question again what freedom means, to study precisely what Postmodernity also means, and to remember that the idea of philosophy is that we cannot answer questions. We do not know what the answer to the question of existence is, but we do know that the question is more important than the answer. And as long as we continue to question uh, this very, very difficult question, well, we leave the conversation open for further for further options for more plurality. And this plurality, at the end, is really what what constitute us as human beings. Like you mentioned before, existence is a practice. I would even go even further and quote Judith Butler that, well, it's really also a performance. We have to decide to, to practice. It is not predetermined beforehand because some reality has been imposed on us. Uh, on the contrary, it's something that we practice. And also, and this is, I hope it's the main message of my book, it's also something that we will find along the way in particular, if we are at large, if we are unconstrained by any sort of sexual, political, or uh, anthropological frame or, or system. Yeah, it's all very interesting. One question that comes up for me, which is going to remain an open question, I guess, based on what you've just said, is uh, what's a good relational point between those two movements within philosophy, in the sense that I have a certain sympathy towards uh, speculative realism, not not as a body of work, because as you rightly said, it's it's uh, a movement that's inhabited by very clever folks, and I often struggle to understand what it is they're actually trying to say. Um, but this idea of a return to the real or, or reality, I'm very sympathetic towards. At the same time, I'm also sympathetic to the interpretive, let's say, endeavor and postmodern thought more generally. And I think I'm, if I've understood you correctly, I'd probably agree with you that I don't think we're at a point where we should be rejecting postmodern thinkers and some of the conclusions that have come out of it, but we should actually be thinking about it more and evolving it in a sense, moving it forwards. And I wonder if there's um, a, a degree of relationship that could exist as a philosopher. I don't know what you think about that between a kind of commitment or return to things that are real in the world. Uh, and I guess that's going to have to be our material existence, right? The limits of the body. Um, the mechanics of existence, and this kind of um, incredible human potential to imagine and to create and to envision a world beyond the physical. That seems to be that 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 is a theme that runs through the history of our species to some degree. I think you could probably argue that. And I wonder to some degree whether this relates to the idea of the poverty of imagination that I put forward in response to your whole concept of a return to order. Wouldn't that be, in a sense, an expression of being at large to find, well, I guess through the interpretive act to find ourselves in a relational practice, right? Where we're, instead of just rejecting or announcing or asserting these positions of everything is interpretation or we just have to, you know, relate everything to the scientific observations that we've made so far because then we'll be okay in how we understand ourselves. It's this um, 
this this ongoing situation of uncertainty that seems to mark the human condition that we must we must continue to come back to in, in, in different phases and different language and in different vernaculars try and make sense of which of course is a as a hermeneutic act itself if i look around and survey the landscape i kind of see that struggle going on to some degree right because we also through the internet have access to more knowledge and some of that knowledge i think you'd probably agree you know falls under the category of facts and again i used a word earlier which is overwhelm i, I feel like we're in a society we're in a globalized condition of overwhelm and covid has just kind of intensified that process but when it comes down to people engaging consciously as performers to use that term that you just mentioned and if we were to say that somebody who's performing is not just reacting or reproducing or parroting whatever you know is dominant in their imagination then i wonder to what degree we we might be able to even be able to even achieve that you know to to be at large and and to even imagine the possibility that these different kinds of thoughts can coexist because that might also resolve the question to some degree you know of uh, you know what's the answer well maybe the answer is not so much the issue but this in, this explorative process of, of seeing how different forms of knowledge relate to each other could be a way forward and even politically you see figures trying to make sense of that too you know with the the new far right the new far left the disdain for the middle there seems to be this ongoing disruption in almost every single arena of life which I, I can't help but, but think is part of the reason why we kind of have this desire for a return to the normal or order. Sorry, uh, Santiago, you know, when I hear some very, very interesting ideas, my imagination just fires off and I end up raising too many points all at once at the end. But again, my, my offer to you would be to pick out any anything from that which makes sense to you or you want to respond to. Well, you raise a lot of issues that I, I cannot respond to all of them because some of them I really don't know how to respond because they're very good point. The starting point for me here, and also the starting point for the other book that I wrote, is that the idea of imperfection, that title of your podcast, must have something to do with that. Because there is, I think, a concern throughout my writing that, well, you know, I mentioned before that the idea of interpretation and genealogy, how it emerged throughout the history, it's constantly accused of being imperfect. But this accusation is something that us hermeneutic philosophers, or even the ones that were accused of being uh, of being wrong or being anarchic, just like you mentioned before, Luther is a very good example. Well, it, this is something that we want. In other words, the idea of being imperfect in some way, or the idea of not being whole also, it's also a way of reflecting that what we see, because we do not believe, or hermeneutic philosophy in general does not believe there is, I mean, you will not find a single psychiatrist or psychologist that would tell you that that would tell you that his treatment would work and that you'll be fine at the end. It doesn't work like that. And even if you have surgery, it's not over. You still have a scar, maybe it hurts from time to time. So the idea of imperfection is really what the starting point here. And even good scientists, uh, the best scientists will tell you, well, you know, it's a mess. Uh, we try to get somewhere, but it's a very complicated journey and it's really a conflict of, of different information and stuff. So. The idea of being imperfect, I think it's really the starting point. I think not only probably for freedom, but also probably for, and I'm sure of this, also for happiness in some way. I really wonder what sort of happiness or how someone can be happy constantly looking for perfection or constantly looking for a reality that every time it is, it is touched upon, it dissolves in some way. Because even scientists, the most scientific research you can find in, I don't know, in nuclear physics, they would tell you that, well, it's, it's always, it's never there. It's always a search. But the idea is that it's the search that actually makes it interesting. And it's, it's the reason we should uh, get involved in some way. So my concern in general, from a philosophical point of view, and in this book in particular, is that, well, perhaps the idea of being at large, of being lost, of not wanting to be totally in control, okay? Because one thing is, of course, well, I can be in control. That's already not totally true, but still, we are more or less, with, with at least we have reached the illusion that we can be in control. But, but it's even more important to, to understand that that's not everything there is. There is a beyond there. Just to make an example for those who, who watch TV series, I mentioned at the beginning of the book that the TV series Mr. Robot, which is basically, uh, basically it's a hacker who tries to hack into corporations and stuff, for the good or the bad, it's unclear. But anyway, the idea is that even him in uh, in this uh, in this TV series, 
it's curious that it uh, it was actually produced because it gives you idea that what well, is someone who is trying to create uh, an alteration of the system, an alteration of social media in general. And I think that simply this idea is already a lot for us today. It's already too much in some way. Anyone who remembers MTV videos of the 1980s and beginning of the 90s uh, will remember that there were music videos that were very violent or very radical, uh, things that we would not see today as easily. Okay, even though we have many more channels today. So my concern is we have to find ways to be at large, which can take place through religion, through art, through philosophy, through politics, through, there's so many ways, because that's, I think, it's also not only a way of being free, but also I think it has something to do with happiness we can have, to the possibilities of happiness that would open up for other possibilities of happiness. Of course, as a philosopher, if I would be teaching now, I would have said ethics instead of happiness, but the idea is also of creating our own happiness. Uh, this is why Nietzsche, I think it's very important here, because he, he requested that we create new values. This is an important request. Are we capable of creating new values today? Well, I think this is a question that perhaps we should all be thinking about now. And that's a good question to ask and a, a good question to end on. And uh, thank you for your time, Santiago. And for the listeners, the, the, the title of the book is Being at Large, Freedom in the Age of Alternative Facts. And it's published by uh, McGill Queen's University Press. So it's, um, it's a great book. It's perfectly readable, even if you don't have a, a very strong background in philosophy. And uh, is there anything else you'd like to say before uh, we close up, Santiago? Oh, I, I'd just like to say that I... Um I took some notes uh, because I think we, we touched on many points that I did not think about. Uh, your questions were very, very interesting. I actually took some notes probably to, to add in some articles to respond, developing some art in my next articles. So thank you very much for having me.